0: VR training platforms like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. It does show the sort of strain that the market is under this winter.
1: It's very rare to hear the chief economist of the Bank of England being so frank about Brexit. I think that
2: what's more problematic for policy in the UK is following these basics uh, so that people make decisions on the basis of uh, the full picture.
3: Stephen, I would like to have a small rant. Oh, just a small one. That's a relief.
1: You're listening to Bloomberg UK Politics. I'm Lizzie Burden.
3: And I'm Ewan Potts.
1: Well, coming up on today's programme, we're going to be speaking to Tim Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University, on his new book, The Conservative Party After Brexit.
3: But first, Suella Braverman has been lashing out against the UK's soaring levels of immigration. To a standing ovation at the NatCon UK conference, the Home Secretary also railed against experts and elites, branded identity politics as illiberal, and said conservatism has no truck with political correctness. In an echo of a slogan from the Tories' 2005 election campaign, she said it's not racist for anyone, ethnic minority or otherwise, to want to control our borders.
1: Not quite as an obvious appeal to the base as the Guardian reading, tofu eating, wok karate, mm. but hey-ho. Braverman says that there's no good reason the UK can't train its own lorry drivers and fruit pickers to help to bring immigration down. But with the labour market tight, although signs of cooling in the latest data, and more on that shortly, industry groups are among those calling for more immigration, especially after Brexit cut the free passage of workers from the European Union.
3: Yeah, it's such a rumbling debate in the 20- party this isn't it i feel it's going to get uh even hotter these immigration stats come out later this month but there are some in the tory party uh, who worry about the economy and the shortage of workers and there are uh, many in the tory party who would like less immigration which is at uh, record levels interesting on the fruit picking actually because it's one of those jobs that you assume that no brits do anymore but actually when when i was a kid my mum's best friend used to pick fruit in the summer and she was from a very comfortably off uh, family but it was something that people did they went and uh, did it we did live in Kent admittedly but she went and picked fruit uh, in the summer so it, it hasn't always been done by immigrants and this isn't years and years ago it was a little while ago Lizzie's looking at me like I'm um, yeah. I'm ancient but it, I think it's a job which has become uh something that Brits don't want to do and of course in a in a very tight labour market people have a lot of options.
1: Well this is Braverman's argument isn't it? Can we turn back time? Anyway to discuss those jobs data from this morning in the studio we're joined now by senior economics reporter Philip Aldrich and Dave Goodman who writes Bloomberg's Markets Today blog. Thanks both for being in the studio with us.
4: Hi Lizzie. Um, yeah so I think the key thing for inflation the numbers at least for now is wage growth is still very elevated it kind of came in as expected over over six percent that's still pretty chunky and is it, going to be a worry for for the boe maybe further out some wage growth is a very lagging indicator very backward looking some of the indicators that were more forward looking suggested we could be in for some ease in the labor market for example the inactivity rate has come down a lot, and it looks like that's on a trend to carry on falling, which may ease some of these concerns over tightness. You were just talking about there, also for for April, which is the most up to date number we got for, from HMRC about payroll data. That showed a really big drop off, a 136,000 fewer workers on on the payroll. Um, big caveat: that number is very prone to big revisions. So who knows this time next month that we could be saying that wasn't as bad as we as we thought but i think that's why the market said this is potentially quite a dovish a dovish report because there are these signs that there is finally some easing in the labor market and that might allow the boe to to think about stopping hiking which some of them seem quite keen to do based on um, some of the comments we've had recently
1: and it's good news for the pm
4: yeah not some good news for the people losing their jobs it's quite a dramatic
3: number wasn't it actually the, the big the biggest uh, downward number in that in that data series since the pandemic a I wants to talk about another big number which is the immigration uh, stats due out uh, in a couple of weeks time there's expected to be bad news to the government and it's going to show a, a big rise in in net migration what do you think of Suella bradman's call for, for for more brits to be trained in fruit picking and, and and truck driving and other things that they haven't thus far shown much inclination to do well, full disclosure, like you, I I, I sorted potatoes
5: on a farm um, when I was younger <laughs> as well. But um, <coughs> the uh, uh, the argument has has long been that um, if if part of the investment problem in the UK is that we've always relied on cheap foreign labour, so the so she's just sort of riffing off that economic principle that if we if we have to pay more for our workforce, then. There is going to be a greater incentive to invest to increase our productivity, and we haven't had that investment. But bef- we haven't had that incentive as clearly as it is now before. So, that, I, I mean, that's. I guess that's her point. I don't know how much um, uh, how much innovation she's expecting in fruit picking. Although there is, I think there is. Uh, there's there's a lot of sort of farmers who are moving to robotics and and, and even automation in that industry. So, um, the, uh, the 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 high immigration numbers really are, are expressing. You know Ukraine and Hong Kong um, immigrants, and there's been a big influx of of international student numbers. The, the The concern is that if you have a if you have a big a big increase in asylum seekers, or people like people like the ukrainians flooding in it's going to make the tories less willing to accept a big increase or to, to accept a lot of economic migration and it's the economic migration that is the problem here we um for we want we do want workers in the visa regime is relatively loose we do want skilled workers into the uk um that is the principle that that the government under boris johnson set up but if you've got a very high level of um Sort of uh, uh, asylum seekers who are not in principle coming here specifically to work, then the, then the Tories are probably going to try and push down on the on the bit that they can control. So they'll stop as many you know more valuable economic migrants coming into the UK, and so then that's going to affect the labour market. And you hear this is this is a concern among the. Uh, among the um, among the employers out there, um, that you know, we do we we have we have a labour supply shortage. We do need to fill these gaps in some some way, um, and at the moment there isn't enough British workers to do it.
0: Mm.
1: The other way that jobs are getting political, of course, is Labour's promising a legal right to switch off, so bosses won't be able to contact workers outside work hours. Dave, is that going to have any impact on the likes of our listeners? You know, most of them tend to sign away the right to limited working hours anyway
4: yeah i don't know i mean it's interesting to see how that plays out and in the kind of as you say in the kind of modern world it's quite hard to imagine switching off from things like email and, and whatsapp and how much that will
1: you're always on twitter
4: exactly yeah and always <laughs> on WhatsApp. but yeah so how that how that kind of cuts through will be interesting just going back to phil's point quite quickly about um automation and, and investment one of the big things about Brexit, I remember writing this back in 2017, was that people were really hoping that it would spark this kind of big investment in in things like machinery, and as the, as the kind of cheap foreign labour dried up, and that would be the thing that would solve up. That was one of the many things that was going to solve the UK productivity puzzle, and um, that hasn't come come through. And it's really not a case where we've got huge numbers of British workers doing nothing anymore. It's actually everyone's there's too many many people have jobs and there aren't this kind of there isn't this kind of pool of labor to do these jobs either so maybe this will be this is another thing that could drive some of that investment but at the moment it doesn't really seem like that's the way it's heading particularly in some of these industries if you still have some a kind of source of labor that's cheaper Could, couldn't it be
3: argued that the tight labor market is, is exactly what people were voting for in in 2016 so we, you know we've lost all these workers uh from the eu mm. and uh, the labor market is very tight and there are jobs for in most places for people everybody who wants one it's yeah not- well that's it i mean you've got fewer workers
5: therefore you're going to have to bid up wages and this is what this is what you know, the government at the time was saying that they wanted you know people to be paid better in the UK but of course if you're paid better without the productivity improvements that's just going to push up prices and so you know then it comes back to what we were talking right at the start about which was the Bank of England looking at the wage data, going crikey, we can't have 6.7% wage inflation because that's way out uh, beyond the limits of sustainable um, consumer price inflation. So we've got to get that down. So we've actually got to drive people into unemployment potentially to uh, to bring that wage number down. So you know, on the one hand, yes, we do want to have. A uh, higher wage economy—that is very clear—but on the other hand, if it's not sustainable because we can't, we're not generating the investment, and we're not delivering that productivity. All it's going to do is just push prices up. And so, you know, the recipe here that you know Sweller, Breverman I suppose, is 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 unthinkingly you know, prescribing is a, basically a higher wage but higher inflation economy, and that's the the higher inflation bit is missing from the analysis.
1: The other thing that markets seem to have been reacting to this morning was Bank of England chief economist Hugh Pill's. Relatively dovish comments yesterday. And he also apologised for saying that Brits should accept their worse off. I kind of want to put this to both of you. What's the upshot of this? Is it only politicians who should be talking about who's going to hurt in a cost of living crisis? Start with you, Dave.
4: Yeah, I think, as ever with the BOE, I think Hugh Pill was making an economic point and thinking of that solely in terms of economics and not really thinking about how it would go down with. The wider population. So the way he was talking was I mean, obviously, if inflation has been so elevated, you don't have this kind of constant pass the parcel, he said, where prices go up, wages go off. That kind of carries on, carries on. And people at some point, someone has to say, well, we can't carry on passing these through, or we, we can't have um, higher wages. He just expressed it in a way that was a kind of obviously quite g- going to really cause a backlash against them by saying we have to accept that we're poorer when it's kind of the BOE's job to keep inflation lower and, and they've obviously haven't done a particularly good job of that recently. Um, but
5: Yeah, I mean, it was, uh, it was a poorly phrased comment. I think it... it it's a sort of expression of the frustration that he and, and the bank of england has with what's going on in the you know with inflation which is it has get it has got embedded into into our domestic our, our economy rather than it's just it's not just an energy price problem it's not just a supply chain problem it's it's embedded in our economy and and it's and it, we've now got into what you know, economists talk about a sort of conflict, uh, inflation conflict, where you know one one side of the uh, equation, you know, as, as Dave was saying, the employers are trying to claw back their squeezed margin with higher prices, um, and on the other side, because prices are higher, the workers are saying, "Crikey, I need to be paid more, so my wages have to go up," and it, and it passes from one to the other. And as long as that conflict persists, you know, you're gonna you're gonna have this dynamic, and and I think the Bank of England is seeing that conflict, seeing that um, that persistence, and wishes. One person or one side of the you know the equation could just take the hit. you know if the if if, if shareholders would say we're not going to take dividends for 18 months you know we're going to sort this out we're going to take a massive hit into into onto the employer and onto the onto the corporate side um, and so we will not put prices up then you potentially could re- you know you would end up slightly resolving this issue because um, then the wages would not go up because there would be no need to recover your uh, to c- recover wages and then everything would f- sort of stabilize at a higher price level and but as long as that conflict exists you know no one's going to stop because they keep on and so it g- keeps on pushing it up and that's the past the past inflation that um that Hugh Hill was talking about and it's um uh, I, I just I know it, it's it's a I think it's it's he expressed it poorly it's a it's a, it's a, it's a sensible sort of explanation but um uh, and I think there's you know real frustration with the, with the banks. They you know theoretically that means they've got to push people out of work to, to stop this mm. to stop the inflation to keep
3: on rising. If only they could find a less clumsy way of expressing it, it would be <laughs> that would be that would be mm. ideal. Thank you so much for joining us in the studio, both of you. Uh, that's Phil and Dave, Philip Aldrich and uh, Dave Goodman uh, from our economics team.
1: Now this morning's UK jobs data also revealed that the number of working days lost to strikes rose to over half a million in March. Speaking of passing the parcel, passing the pay. This morning's UK jobs data also revealed that the number of working days lost to strikes rose to over half a million in March. To explain, explain the political impact, he's back. It's our strikes reporter, Assad Zulfikar. Assad, thanks so much for coming back into the studio. What damage have the strikes done to the UK economy?
6: Well, on the working days front, you know, it brings the ONS's total tally to over 3.5 million days lost. But in pounds Sterling, the Centre for Economics and Business Research has estimated a total direct cost to the UK of £1.2 billion in the 12 months to June. Or only 0.05 percent of annual GDP. Now that's not a lot in and of itself. However, indirect costs are of course harder to calculate. There's often an environmental cost, for instance, when travel plans are disrupted and people drive cars instead of boarding trains en masse. Then there's the public health cost of missed cancelled appointments or treatments amid NHS strikes concerning junior doctors, nurses, paramedics and other staff. Then there's the costs of, you know, when people are working from home because their teachers, well their kids' teachers are on strike and they can't quite be as productive as they want to be and so there's a sort of knock-on effect there with their own work workplace. And so there are all these other indirect costs which will be felt throughout the country in much more subtle ways that, that are harder to quantify but that you know aren't doing amazing things for a country sort of um, in- attempting to restart its growth project.
3: Now I said I can't ke- go ahead around it but just just talk us through who has settled and who is still on strike. It's a complicated picture.
6: It is a complicated picture. It's a constantly shifting picture. I mean, it's it's so. Some some there have been some big settlements. So like the Royal Mail, of course, have settled. Um, there have been rail settlements in Scotland and Wales. There have been buses settlements and so on. But there's still there's still a whole bevy of uh, disputes going on. For instance, in the NHS, non-medical staff had agreed a deal. However, nurses who are with, contained within this Agenda for Change uh, scheme, which includes you know, like paramedics and cleaners and so on. They they get the deal because it got voted on overall, but they don't actually think it's enough for them, so they're continuing on with their dispute. I mean, Pat Cullen, the general secretary of the RCN, is speaking today in a, at a congress in Brighton for for the union, and she's going to tell members to continue to vote for strike action because they think they they can negotiate a better deal still. And the NHS has you know problems beyond the nurses as well. I mean, junior doctors are still uh, sort of in dispute. There there are talks about talks, I think, at the moment. However, you know, senior doctors are now beginning to vote for strike action. As as Well, so the NHS is f- far from out of the woods and rail strikes, of course, are still going on as everyone trying to go to Liverpool this weekend for Eurovision probably found and people might find in a month's time when they try and go to the FA Cup final in Wembley for Manchester. Mm. However, it's it's sort of I feel like people are beginning to feel like there's progress because there's a bit more negotiation going on. And so And with inflation forecast to fall, it seems like perhaps some of what's been biting is going to bite less.
1: Our Strikes reporter, Asad Zulfiqar, really great to have you back on.
6: Now, a recent history of a UK political party would not normally
3: include four prime ministers and two general elections. This has not been a normal few years in British politics. Tim Bale's new book, The Conservative Party After Brexit, Turmoil and Transformation, covers the dramatic ups and downs since the referendum back in June 2016.
1: Well, I'm glad to say that Tim Bale, professor of politics at Queen Mary University of London, joins us now. Tim, thanks so much for being on the programme. I wonder, were you inspired to chronicle the Conservatives' recent history because you think their time in office may be over soon?
2: (laughs) Well, that's a question I kind of leave open at the end of the book, just as a spoiler, um, the Conservative Party has got an incredible record of uh, sometimes coming back from uh, defeat or near defeat. So I wouldn't totally write them off. But I do wonder whether, in fact, now, you know, finally, uh, their, their time has come.
0: Ah, huh, OK. Uh, what were the challenges then of writing a book? I mean, it's such recent history. A lot of the key players are so involved still in current politics. How do you get a bit of perspective
2: Well, that is always a bit of an issue when you're writing about recent events, you're right. But I think uh, being an academic helps in the sense that uh, I do have, because I got a research grant, actually, to write this book a little bit more time to take a slightly longer view. And I'd also say that having some uh, familiarity with the Conservative Party's history, really, throughout the post-war period, means that hopefully I'm able to kind of set things in a a little bit of of context. So while I think it is important to chronicle the flow of events, because I think, you know, politicians do live in a kind of 24-7 media environment and there's a lot coming at them uh, all the time. So I I don't think you can go too far in, in taking the long view, if you like, all the time. Uh, I, I do think it's it's possible to get just a little bit more perspective uh, on on things than, than perhaps would be the case if uh, I was involved in, you know, like you guys, having to report it day in, day out. Tim, take us back to the
3: start of this uh, period, the right up to that f- fateful election for Theresa May. Really interesting to, to read in the book about some of the polling evidence uh, presented to the Tories ahead of that election. And unlike the media narrative, it didn't say that the Tories would be would be certain to get a landslide, did it?
2: No, it didn't. Um, One of the interesting things about um, a couple of the interviews I did with Tory strategists um, was to reveal quite how uncertain certainly some of them were uh, about the necessity for an election and indeed the, you know, the sagacity of calling one in in the first place. Um, I think they were quite persuaded um, by uh, the research which suggested that the public couldn't really see a reason for uh, an election in the first place, given that Theresa May had uh, a majority uh, and regarded it really as a bit of a kind of waste of uh, of time and, and effort and just wanted the government to get on with actually both delivering Brexit and tackling some of the uh, other uh, problems that the, the UK was facing. Uh, it's also the case, it has to be said, that they did in the end agree to that election, um, but I think partly because they weren't as familiar with um, Theresa May's let's call them downsides, as perhaps they should have been uh, and people who were uh, closer to Theresa May, to, to May were. Um, so they they hadn't really realised um, quite how poor a campaigner she would be. So I think created a strategy where she was going to carry the party um, without knowing that actually she just wasn't capable of doing that.
0: Is Johnson a one-off? I mean, the, the Conservative Party seems to be swinging between kind of charismatic leader and technocrats i mean you talk about um rishi sunak uh, you could also make comparisons to theresa may in the sense that he's quite untested at a national level isn't he
2: yeah i mean i think that's a really good point very often i think when political parties are choosing um the the next leader they've often uh, been known to react as it were against the the current leader so i think there is something in that i mean boris johnson i think though is an exceptional character in the sense that Uh, Really, I think, in contrast to many conservatives, he he really is, you know, devoid of of much ideology or indeed many ideas uh, and and doesn't really have much of a sense of what he wants to do when he gets into government other than to get into government itself uh, and to be prime minister or world king, as sometimes um, people put it. He's obviously got this connection with some voters, although I would say the polling evidence suggests that it's not quite the, you know, the the, the kind of Heineken effect that some conservative politicians who are big fans of Boris Johnson sometimes refer to. I mean, certainly in the... Um, 2019 election, for example, which many people think of as Boris Johnson winning for the Conservative Party. It's very notable that actually he's less popular with voters than Theresa May was throughout the course of the 2017 campaign. So uh, I guess it's his ability to appeal to, uh, uh, you know, a, a target group of voters in that 2019 election. Um, and particularly, obviously, voters from the, the red wall, if you like, that, that helped the Conservatives. But it was by no means Boris Johnson himself that won that election. It was Boris Johnson's promise to get Brexit done. And then very importantly, actually, to get on with all the things that people um, really wanted to see, which was investment in public services, for example, um, that, uh, that Brexit was holding up.
3: Tim, I want to ask you about that. Is Brexit done? I don't mean all those negotiations with Brussels, but I mean its influence on British politics. We saw a a Brexit unwind starting to appear in the local elections whereby people who voted uh, one way or the other are going back to their traditional parties. Do you think that the, the referendum still hangs over British politics or are we moving past that now?
2: No, I think that is a really good question, particularly, as you say, in light of the uh, local elections, which do suggest that actually um, Brexit seems to be playing less of a part, perhaps, in in voters' considerations when they're they're choosing which party uh, to vote for. I mean, I, I think it is fair to say that Brexit did have a very big influence after 2016 in the sense that it seemed to sort voters... Uh, into uh, the two main parties. So you had a lot of Leave voters who previously might have automatically almost voted for Labour coming over to the Conservatives and actually weirdly enough beginning to um, favour Conservative policies across a whole range of things other than, than, than Brexit. And then, of course, you had a whole bunch of uh, Remain voters, but just not as many of them uh, moving over to Labour and to to some extent the, the Liberal Democrats. Uh, but I do think that actually uh, we are beginning to see Brexit disappear in, in the rearview mirror as far as most voters are, are concerned. But I think the important thing to realise is that Brexit you know, wasn't important simply um, in and of itself. It was important in some ways the kind of cutting edge of a, uh, a deeper you know, cultural divide, if you like, uh, in, in the British electorate uh, mm. between people who, you know, regarded, uh, uh, you know, some of the changes that have gone on in British society for you know, decades, really, as uncomfortable, as unwelcome. Uh, and wanted to do something about it, and I think you know that cultural um, divide is is still there, and it it, it plays out demographically uh, between older, whiter, uh, less educated voters on the one hand, and uh, younger, better educated, uh, and often you know slightly more multi ethnic voters on the other.
0: Well, I want to ask a question about that, looking forward to the next election. I mean, we're going into the kind of second media age, as it were, AI, uh, in terms of um, the internet. The role of the right-wing press in all of this, especially around the implementation of Brexit and Partigate and everything else, is it still... The kind of most important bellwether, you know, the backing of the red top newspapers or the right wing newspapers for one candidate or another sealing it. Do you think that's still necessary?
2: Well, there is an irony here. Uh, and in some ways, I detect it in your question, which is that, you know, sales of these newspapers have declined precipitately uh, over uh, the years. And yet they still seem to have this this influence um, within the Conservative Party in particular um, despite the fact that actually decades of research has shown us that they don't have as much impact on voters as, as many um, politicians seem to to think they have. I think the, the the way to understand um the the Tory press, um and, and I go into this in, in the book actually, is to see it as an integral part of the Conservative Party. So in other words, um it's not uh, something that exists outside of the party is mm. actually what I call the party in the media. So it helps set the agenda for the Conservative Party, and it's often the forum in which um, you know people with ambitions um, conduct, as it were, their 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 conflicts uh, with each other. And I certainly think if, if we're talking about Conservative Party members. It's probably true that the conservative supporting newspapers do have more of an effect than they do on, on voters more generally when they come to, to choose a leader, which is why you see um, throughout the book and, and we will see it in the future as well. Um, anybody who is going for the leadership continually trying to appeal um, to those those particular newspapers and this is very evident actually in in the sort of last year of the the johnson regime as as much as anywhere else when you have liz truss and and rishi sunak quite clearly briefing the newspapers all the time very often after cabinet meetings which are supposed to be secret after all and suggesting for example you know that they they want to um you know, free up things much faster than than Johnson does when it comes to COVID. Um, so I, I think it's impossible really to understand the modern Conservative Party without understanding the influence of, you know, papers like The Telegraph, The Mail and The Express, uh, and even perhaps, dare I say it now, GB News.
1: Mm, yeah, former chancellor described Liz Truss to me as a leaker in chief. <laughs> I'll leave them unnamed. Look, Tim, will you settle something for us? I want to know, is Rishi Sunak really a Brexiter? The conspiracy theory goes that he only picked the Leave side because he had to in order to win his seat. And I speak to lots of people in the city who just can't fathom how someone with a finance background like his could have been pro-Leave.
2: That's a really good question. And I think the answer is yes. I mean, I think it is true that a lot of Conservative MPs in order to get selected uh, had to uh, burnish their Eurosceptic uh, credentials. But I don't think they necessarily needed to say that they were leavers, not at the point anyway that Rishi Sunak uh, won his seat. I, I do think he is a true believer. Quite why that is the case is difficult, as you say, to to fathom, because most people involved in Uh, international business would regard, you know, the the erection of, you know, barriers to trade between the EU and and the UK uh, as as a bad idea. Perhaps, though, uh, uh, it is something to do with, you know, his belief that actually Britain's future is global rather than European, if you like. And and that might come down to the fact that, you know, he, he is of Indian origin and also he studied in the United States. So it gives him a slightly different perspective, perhaps.
3: Tim, how different is the Conservative Party of 2023 to the Conservative Party on the eve of that referendum, which David Cameron was uh, set to win back in the summer of 2016?
2: I mean, it's easy to see it as chalk and cheese, isn't it, really? Because I think what we have then is a, a party run um, by, you know, a self-confessed liberal conservative who, OK, was very Thatcherite on the economy, austerity and all that, uh, but actually... Uh, had the measure of a country that was becoming increasingly socially liberal, was becoming increasingly uh, multi-ethnic, and and I think wanted to project the Conservative Party quite clearly into the middle of the 21st century in in that respect. And then, you know, now we have a Conservative Party that is, as I say in a book, a kind of ersatz populist radical right party in the sense that, you know, it pits the the elites against the people. Uh, It's very uh, strongly uh, anti uh, asylum seeker, anyway, if not immigration, uh, on the quiet, um, it wants to attack the establishment uh, uh, as much as it possibly can. Uh, it, you know, it plays to people's fears about social change uh, and targets, in some ways, a, a, a rather different audience. Having said that, however, I think you can see uh, in the Conservative Party, really, all the way, you know, from the the late 20th century onwards, uh, a kind of populist strain. Uh, mm. Within the party, that has sometimes been appealed to, you know, quite um, explicitly by conservative leaders. If you think back to William Hague between 1997 and 2001, and the whole "Save the Pound" campaign, and the whole, you know, "Let me take you to a foreign land" speech that he gave. I mean, that's kind of textbook populism as well. I think the difference now is that having flirted with populism for a very long time. Um, you know, possibly over decades, even a century or so, the Conservative Party does now seem to have swallowed it whole. And I guess the question is whether, you know, once that's happened, to mix a metaphor, you can put the genie back in the bottle. Well, that was Tim
3: Bale, Professor of Politics at Queen Mary University, speaking to Lizzie Mee and Caroline Hepker.
1: Well, that's it from us for today. If you like the programme, don't forget to subscribe and give it five stars so other people can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or wherever you listen.
3: This episode was produced by James Walcock and our audio engineer was John Wasserman. I'm Eamon Potts.
1: I'm Lizzie Burden. And we'll be back with more tomorrow. This is Bloomberg.
3: Bloomberg UK Politics. Listen weekdays at noon on DAB Digital Radio in London.
2: Do you love Elon Musk? Do you hate Elon Musk? Do you have no idea what to think about Elon Musk? Then we have just a show for you.